Last week we discussed a nuclear novel and I felt quite able to discuss it as I frequently write book reviews for the press. I'm a bookworm and so I was on nice, safe, familiar territory. But this week we're looking at pop music, specifically nuclear pop music of the 1980s and here I'm not so sure of my reviewing skills because I'm no expert on pop music. My dad reminds me of that every time I see him when he grumbles about how he tried to raise me to love Mark Bolan and Billy Idol and The Clash and instead I went off and joined the Pet Shop Boys fan club. So I've chosen a few important 1980s nuclear songs and I'll discuss them as nuclear songs. I won't be talking about their rhyme and rhythm and beat and structure because I don't know what I'm talking about (laughs) instead. I'll talk about what they mean and what they tell us about nuclear anxiety of the 1980s and where they fit in to Cold War horror. And of course there's no more emotive topic than what should be in the top 10 or what should be in the top 20 of best uh, pop songs. So the ones I've chosen for this episode are simply the ones that I like and that there's something to say about. There are of course a million more many of which I hadn't even heard of and have been suggested by my followers on Twitter and Facebook. So I've drawn up a Google playlist of all those songs and I've posted that on my social media pages. So take a look if you want to hear it and by all means suggest any others that I might have overlooked. As long as it's nuclear and 80s, then we can include it. So let's go ahead and look at a few important nuclear pop songs from the 1980s. We'll start with a song from the beginning of the decade, which confronted the dreadful start of the nuclear age. Enola Gay, by Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark, or OMD, was released in September 1980 and reached number 8 in the UK charts. It refers, of course, to the nuclear attack on Hiroshima, as Enola Gay was the name of the B-29 which dropped the bomb on the city. A Guardian interview with the singer Andy McCluskey said the following, I researched the subject in the library. It's not the way most people write songs, but couched the lyric in metaphor and emotive language. I thought the line, Is mother proud of little boy today? was so terribly clever because it had several meanings. It referenced the fact that the plane was named after the pilot's mother, and the bomb was codenamed Little Boy, while also asking whether a mother would be proud of what her son was doing. I was ambivalent about this. Would you fly a plane to kill all those people because you thought you were going to save even more? That's of course the eternal debate about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Some people say it was unforgivable and appalling and disgusting. Other people say it brought the war to a quicker conclusion. And of course, it made sure that no further nuclear bombs were detonated in war during the Cold War, because we'd all seen exactly what it meant for poor Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So the Enola Gay, that infamous plane, the pilot who flew the plane and named it after his mother, had the strangely cute name of Colonel Tibbets. He sounds almost like a little character from the Sylvanian families, little Colonel Tibbets. And he named the plane after his mother, Enola Gay Tibbets. She was born in 1890. And it's so strange to think that a girl from 
19th century Iowa would give birth to a son who'd launched the first nuclear bomb in war. It always dazzles my mind to think how quickly technology began to speed up and zoom ahead. Obviously, nothing spurs science and tech on like war, and the first half of the 20th century was packed with the two worst we've ever known. Nonetheless, it's mind-boggling to connect a girl from 19th century Iowa with the beginning of the nuclear age. I talked about this before on Twitter after watching a YouTube interview from 1970 with an elderly lady who'd lived through both the Jack the Ripper murders and the moon landings. It's so odd to think that those two things could have happened in one person's lifetime when they seem to be just eons apart. So Colonel Tibbetts named his plane after his dear old mum and this followed in the tradition of naming ships etc after women although a new trend was emerging in the Second World War of adorning planes with names and images of glamorous, famous, sexy women. Certainly not one's mother. The most famous example of this was the association of Rita Hayworth with the nuclear bomb. I direct you to the wonderful website Conrad for the full story in this, which examines in brilliant detail the legend that a portrait of Howarth from her film Gilda was painted on the bomb dropped at the Bikini Atoll tests in 1946. These tests were collectively known as Operation Crossroads and were hugely controversial. Again, Connell Rad tells us that one uh, lady committed suicide in America after learning of the tests because she was so terrified of what it meant for the future of the human race. There certainly was a lot of anxiety about Operation Crossroads. We still didn't know exactly what the nuclear bomb could do. And so the guy in charge of Operation Crossroads, Vice Admiral William Blandy, was compelled to speak publicly to assure everyone that the nuclear tests would not be apocalyptic, would not cause the end of the world. Here's a clip of his statement, his very defensive statement from YouTube. The bomb will not start a chain reaction in the water, converting it all to gas and letting all the ships on all the oceans drop down to the bottom. It will not blow out the bottom of the sea and let all the water run down the hole. It will not destroy gravity. I am not an atomic playboy, as one of my critics labelled me, exploding these bombs to satisfy my personal whim. Look, he's not an atomic playboy, so just relax, everyone, it's fine. Of course, the association of the nuclear bomb with women and sex continued with the decision in 1946 to name the scandalous and daring new swimsuit after these terrifying nuclear tests. That's where the bikini comes from. And of course we have women from the 40s to the 60s being known as bombshells or sex bombs, although admittedly that arose in the Second World War before the nuclear bomb actually came along. Turning back to the song, there are clear references in it to the bombing of Hiroshima, such as the lyric... It's 8.15, that's the time that it's always been, which is surely a reference to the broken, charred clocks in Hiroshima, which were found in the wreckage, which had all stopped at quarter past eight, the moment when the bomb dropped. And it's reference to this kiss you give, it's never ever going to fade away, is surely a reference to the horrible legacy of Fallout. It's an odd song, an unusual one, in that it takes such a horrible, haunting subject and attaches it to a 
bloody catchy little tune. I like it. Now we'll turn to a song which wasn't so wildly popular or as catchy, but is arguably more important in terms of its lyrics and artistry. It's Breathing by Kate Bush. It came out in 1980, being released in April and got to number 16. The song is told from the perspective of a fetus in its mother's womb, who is aware that outside a nuclear war has occurred, and the fetus is frightened of the fallout that it's forced to ingest through its mother. Lyrics speak of, Last night in the sky, such a bright light, my radar sends me danger but my instincts tell me to keep breathing. The fetus can't help but grow and then be born into this dreadful world, even though, as the lyrics say, chips of plutonium are twinkling in every lung. It's a very bold move, of course, to sing a song from the perspective of fetus. A big fuss was made, I think, last year when Ian McEwan did the same thing. He wrote a novel from the perspective of fetus, which I didn't read because it sounds too ludicrous. I can accept it in a song, but the idea of it in a novel just deters me somehow. Maybe you can get away with more in a song, especially if you're Kate Bush. But um, by telling it from the perspective of a fetus, we of course look at something which is utterly helpless and can only rely on instinct. The baby isn't, or the fetus isn't making a conscious decision to breathe in the fallout. That's just what its little developing body and organs are doing. It can't help but breathe. And it can't help but take in all the poison from the destroyed world outside. And of course we are as helpless as a baby against the Cold War superpowers. There's nothing the individual can do to stop Moscow and Washington threatening one another. That's a theme which pops up in another nuclear song from the 80s, which I haven't featured in this episode, but it's on my playlist, called uh, Man in CNA by The Specials. The ordinary man in CNA, just a member of the public, nothing special about him. He can't do anything. The superpowers and the men in charge don't care about the man in CNA. They don't care about the fetus in the womb. You don't factor in their calculations. So we're helpless as the fetus, helpless as a baby, And of course, the most frightening thing for a child is the knowledge that there are dangers in the world that not even your parents can protect you from. That's something I always think about in my own realisation of what nuclear war meant. I've talked about it in my my episode about threads. I watched threads when I was only three. And one of the most horrifying things that I remember from it wasn't the film itself, but the slow knowledge after it. Well, I can't call it knowledge, I was only three, but the, the feeling after it that there was this terrible thing called the bomb and nobody could help me. None of the adults could sort it out. If there's a problem when you're young, you take it to your dad or your mum or your gran. 
but this problem, no one can fix it for you, not even Gran. And again, that theme pops up in this in this song. The fetus in the womb, protected by its mother's body, its mother nurturing it, etc. But in this case, there's not a thing that poor mother can do for that baby. The child or the fetus has to breathe, and it has to breathe and fall out. And again, if we look at threads, those of you who've seen threads will all know that the final scene in the film is particularly horrifying and it deals with the birth of a child who has breathed in this fallout. So those of you who think of Kate Bush as some hippie with long hair singing about Wuthering Heights, not at all. There are songs like Breathing, which are stark and blunt and terrifying. Now let's leave a very melancholy song and turn to two more rather upbeat ones, or relatively upbeat. Can you have an upbeat nuclear song? Yes, because you can have songs involving sarcasm and black humour and a prickly longing for Armageddon. For example, Morrissey's Every Day is Like Sunday pleads for Armageddon, pleads for the nuclear bomb to destroy the miserable seaside town he's stranded in. That song, of course, is the best thing he ever did after leaving the Smiths. And it's another Smith song that we're going to quickly look at here. Panic. Panic on the streets of London. Panic on the streets of Panic is inspired by nuclear disaster, not nuclear war. Released in 1986, the story goes that Morrissey heard the terrible news about Chernobyl announced on Radio 1 by the irritatingly cheery Steve Wright, who delivered the horrible story, then launched right into some cheesy pop. I think it was I'm Your Man by Wham. Morrissey thought that was absurdly tasteless and crass, and that's what inspired Panic. The song, however, isn't completely about Chernobyl or about nuclear disaster. It seems to be divided in two, with the first half describing scenes of panic across Britain, presumably in response to Chernobyl or a nuclear disaster of our own. But then Morrissey switches the focus and the song zooms in on his hatred of cheesy, chirpy 1980s pop and the type of DJ uh, summed up by Steve Wright as he delivered that news about Chernobyl and then immediately switched over to Wham. The lyrics say that this music says nothing to me about my life. And the song ends with a joyous choir of children repeating, hang the DJ. Oh, Morrissey, you've said some terrible things of late, but you were once a solid gold genius. So Morrissey doesn't give his song completely to nuclear disaster. It's split between nuclear disaster and irritating DJs. But there was another one in the 1980s which did. This was Dancing with Tears in My Eyes by Ultravox, released in 1984, and it tells the story of a man driving home to his wife and child when a news flash pops up saying that there's going to be a nuclear explosion. Not a nuclear bomb, but an explosion at a nuclear power plant. Of course, these are the days before the internet, so he sees this news flash by looking through a shop window and seeing arrays of TVs for sale. Remember that's how we used to get the news before the internet? Seeing it through the window of Dixon's? Well, the news flash 
pops up red on the screen saying nuclear explosion imminent, stay indoors and await further information. He races home to spend the last minutes with his family before the white flash and death. It was a hit song reaching number three, but I think now the video is almost as famous as the song. It shows he and the wife having a drink and a dance as they spend their last moments together and they then go to bed, which is a bit harsh on their brat who gets shoved off to its own room to encounter Armageddon alone just so mummy and daddy can have sex. But it's a great video. As the couple lie down and cover themselves with a white sheet, the bedroom window is open and we see the white flash and the flimsy curtain billows into the room and then the scene changes to old home video footage of them all in happier times. I'd rank this one with Enola Gay as the catchiest of the tunes we'll discuss today. Over the past few days preparing this podcast, those are the two that I've had stuck rigidly in my head. Here's a clip from Dancing with Tears in My Eyes. course this song and video now make us think of Chernobyl but we must remember the single appeared two years before the world's worst nuclear disaster and although it's not about nuclear war it's certainly about nuclear anxiety about uncertainty the lingering doubts and fears about this thing we created this awesome new technology which is obviously far more powerful than we and can even blot out the sun if it goes wrong And it's things going spectacularly wrong, which is the theme of our next song. Nine Red Balloons by Nina can join Enola Gay and Dancing with Tears in My Eyes as being a song about a terrifying subject which is set to an undeniably catchy tune. It was released in West Germany in 1983 and then translated loosely into English the following year and released in the UK as 99 Red Balloons. The two songs, or the lyrics of the two songs, aren't identical as the German version has some UFO references. I don't read German, I'm just telling you that from Wikipedia. Whereas the English one was all about nuclear war and the nuclear threat. The song presents a scenario where a bunch of innocent red balloons have been released into the sky. They go floating off and instead of this being an act of celebration or of cheer... The song immediately plunges us into unease because the early warning systems have spotted these strange objects in the sky and have misinterpreted them as an incoming nuclear missile. And so, nuclear war breaks out, caused by these innocent red balloons from a toy shop. Now this isn't such a far-fetched scenario. If you listened to my previous episode called False Alarm, We talked about the famous scare in 1983 when the Soviet early warning system 
detected an American incoming nuclear attack. This, of course, could have easily tipped us into nuclear war as the Soviets, had it not been for the cool head of Stanislav Petrov, nicknamed the man who saved the world, decided it must have been an error. And so it was. The system had spotted sunlight reflecting off high clouds and had misinterpreted that as incoming nuclear missiles. Other terrifying false alarms in the Cold War were triggered by things as innocent and silly as a flock of geese. So yeah, why not a bunch of balloons? Geese, clouds and red balloons. These are the things which determine whether we live or die. Now we're turning to the darkest and probably most poetic nuclear war song of this episode. Incredibly, I didn't even know about this song until a couple of months ago. It's by a band that I'm afraid I have always ignored. It's by Pink Floyd, and of course, if you know them, you'll know I'm going to say it's Two Sons in the Sunset. Now, this song has really haunted me since I learned it. I didn't know, I I knew of it, I'd heard of it, but I'd never actually sat down and properly listened to it. And now I have, and on first listen, it seems quite... Well, it's it's not got a great tune, but then it's a deep song, it's a meaningful song. It's a song that you have to listen to, or I had to listen to, more than once before I got it, if you like. And now that I've absorbed it, I am haunted by it. It describes the nuclear holocaust erupting whilst a man is just driving down the road in his car. Driving along the road, he feels an eerie premonition that something is about to happen. This made me think of the scene at the end of the film Failsafe. That's the original black and white version. I haven't seen the remake. But there's a scene where all the pigeons suddenly take flight. New York City is about to be annihilated by the nuclear bomb. And in the last second before the bomb detonates, we see a flock of pigeons on the street suddenly take fright and fly, as though they too have had a premonition or some animal sixth sense of what is about to happen. So our driver in the car feels this horrible creeping fear and says, suddenly it's day again. The sun is in the east, even though the day is done. Two suns in the sunset. Could be the human race is run. Looking at the sunset in the rearview mirror, he notices, of course, there are now two suns. The other, of course, being the fireball of the nuclear holocaust. And as he watches it, time must start to elongate and go slow, as some people describe when they're going through a a shock or a trauma or a horrific incident, they see they say that they feel it or they experienced it in slow motion. I'm reading a book currently about 9-11. I recommend it to you. I've been tweeting about it. So if you follow me on Twitter, you'll probably be sick of hearing about this. But um, the book is exceptional. It's called The Only Plane in the Sky. It's by Garrett Graff, who we've previously mentioned on this podcast as the author of Raven Rock. Um, he has written the first oral history of 9-11 and it is absolutely brilliant and there are a few people survivors of course who recall what it was like when they were in the towers when it hit or when the building began to collapse and some people say they remember it in slow motion so that's how I imagine this driver in the car 
glances into his rearview mirror and he can see two suns in the sunset. He has the time and the perception to look at the fireball and realise. Whereas in reality, of course, the fireball would be instantaneous and it would, if you were looking at it, it would probably blind you. And if you were near enough, you'd be evaporated instantly. But this is a song. This is art. There is such a thing as poetic licence. Nonetheless, he looks up and he sees two suns in the sunset. And he has a moment of strange, slow shock and surprise as he sees the bomb burst. And then the song suddenly crashes and changes. It loses its dreamy tone and it becomes loud and aggravating and nightmarish. And then his windshield melts and his tears evaporate. Ashes and diamonds, foe and friend, we were all equal in the end. Then it fades out. Perhaps in agreement with how T.S. Eliot predicted the world will end. Not with a bang, but a whimper. I'll play you a clip from the song. Gives way and suddenly it's day. The sun is in the east, even though the day is done. Two suns in the sunset. Could be the human race is right. the songs I've um, learned and discovered and re-heard in preparation for this podcast, this one, Two Sons in the Sunset by Pink Floyd, has lingered with me the longest. I can't shake it off. Enola Gay, Dancing with Tears in My Eyes, uh, 99 Red Balloons, catchy tune, obvious pop tunes, and they can be caught in your head as a so-called earworm. You could be humming them all day. But it's easy enough to dislodge one of those songs by humming another catchy one, <laughs> replacing one earworm with another. Oh, that's Bomba standing on some squeaky toys, sorry. Um, but this one can't be dislodged. Once this is in your blood, it's there. I can't shake off this song and its nightmarish feel. It reminds me very much of the novel we discussed last week, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, because... Cormac McCarthy takes a very sparse amount of words. He's not flowery and ornate and going on and on about description. He takes a very sparse amount of words and is able to create a whole ream of devastating images. A limited amount of words and a limited amount of outward emotion. That's what it is on the surface. But underneath it is haunting and it has its hooks in my skin right now. I can't shake it off. What a brilliant song. Thank you to everyone who suggested this one to me on Twitter. I had some silly prejudice against Pink Floyd, thought they were too bleak and obscure for my taste. Because as we know, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, my taste in pop music is very commonplace. It's Pet Shop Boys. That's my ideal. Pet Shop Boys 80s disco. So I didn't think there's anything for me with Pink Floyd. But this song is exceptional.
And now we turn to the last song of the episode. Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood doesn't have the best lyrics. When two tribes go to war, a point is all that you can score. It's hardly poetry, but it doesn't need to be when the music is so great. For me, the dramatic, thumping, hyped-up music of Two Tribes perfectly sums up the nuclear anxiety of the early 80s. And then consider its video. Like Dancing With Tears In My Eyes, when people mention this song, they usually always refer to the video. Watch it on YouTube if you haven't seen it. It depicts a dusty boxing ring, and all the countries in the world are gathered to watch Reagan and Chernenko slug it out in the ring. As they punch and grapple and crow and beat their chests, the audience egg them on and get excited. There's no one who's sensible and calm. We're all just savages spoiling for a fight, wanting to see blood. But of course, there's another reason why I particularly love this song and why it holds a special place in the Nuclear 80s selection. And that's because of their Annihilation remix of the single, I believe they did quite a few remixes, but my fave is the Annihilation remix because it features Patrick Allen, the narrator of Protect and Survive, and he recites parts of his terrifying script throughout the song. Let's see the clip. When you hear the air attack warning, you and your family must take cover at once. Do not stay out of doors. You are caught in the open, lie down. Now I know it's traditional to end one of these um, review podcasts on the, the best item, but I had to end it with arguably the second best, Two Tribes, because I couldn't leave you with Two Sons in the Sunset. It's just too dark, too awful. I had to end it with some Frankie. As I said earlier, I've got a playlist of all the nuclear 80s songs of note that I could think of and that were suggested to me by people on Twitter. So take a look at my Twitter feed at Julie A. McDowell or my Facebook page Nuclear Britain and you can see the playlist there and of course um, send me any suggestions of songs you want to have added to it as long as they're 80s and as long as they're nuclear. All that remains is to thank you all for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast please consider leaving me a review on iTunes And of course, if you want to support it with some donations each month, please do take a look at my Patreon page. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, and that helps support the podcast. And of course, all my nuclear research for the book that I'm writing. Let me give a specific thank you to the following patrons. Louis, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner, Everybody, Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker, Dan Breen, Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Stegervald, Ben Taylor, Jonathan Abelins, Simon Robinson, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Craig Bushman, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damien Ryan, Peter Lee, Julie Rose, Jonathan Fozard, Emma Nystrom, Ben Grabham, Ed Freshwater, Rosie Jameson, Andrew Key, Ian Elkin, Lorraine Gluick, Eamon Coyle, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Wilnuff, 
Kevin Booter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan and Gordy McNair. Thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next Sunday with another one. Bye for now.